chapter on the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel is really kind of an interesting book. It will have in it, I plan on spending at least three weeks in it. And it has some very interesting things in it that I think you'll find to be a, a real blessing. And some of those things are um, significant to current events that are here. But all I want to do this morning is give you an introduction to the book of Ezekiel, give you the purpose of the book, and deal with the first three chapters. The first chapter, if you've read it recently, you know that as you read it, it seems to be a little bit like the book of Revelation. Seems to be kind of difficult to understand. And I'm going to suggest some things without trying to be dogmatic and locked in on exactly that these are what all these particular symbols mean. But let's talk about, first of all, a little bit of background and history of Ezekiel. Ezekiel ministered at the same time as Jeremiah. The difference is that Ezekiel ministered in Judah and Jeremiah ministered, I'm sorry, um, Ezekiel ministered in Babylon and Jeremiah ministered still in Judah. But Ezekiel was born about 622. He's born in the land of Judah. He was around 25 years old. When he, when he was taken to Babylon in the second group of deportation. Remember, there were three groups that went to Babylon. He had the first and he had second. Daniel and Ezekiel would have gone in the second. And the third was when the destruction of Jerusalem came in. And Jeremiah went to Egypt. Some of them went to Egypt and some of them went to Babylon in the third deportation. But this book deals with the period from the second deportation unto the very end when Babylon conquers the city of Jerusalem and uh, all of Palestine and all of Israel and Judah is scattered abroad. He was taken captive in 597. So if you combine that with the birth at 622, that brings you to 25 years. And his ministry was in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's captivity. This is all mentioned in the first couple of verses. In Ezekiel 1, we read, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Well, if we took the time, we could trace all those dates and lock it in. Verse 2 says, In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. So you can trace all these dates throughout the Bible, but I'm not going to try to get uh, technical into all the things that are there. The purpose of the book can be found by its divisions. It's divided up into three groups. Chapters 1 through 24 are dealing with the impending final judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. Then you have chapters 25 through 32, which deal with prophecies concerning the nations that are to come. Some of those things could be coming to pass right now with the rise of ISIS, with the rise of Al-Qaeda, uh, and the, different, the rise of the different Muslim groups and things that are going on in the Middle East. Some of those things could be coming to pass right now, what Ezekiel was speaking on. But I don't know that I'm going to get into that. The third area is Israel's restoration, which is chapters 33 to 48. And it deals with 
uh, how that God is going to punish Israel, scatter them throughout the world, but then he's going to bring them back to their land and he's going to restore them. And that's going to usher in a new millennial age as well as a, a new age after that thousand year reign. So those chapters are very significant for end time events. We've ministered on them before, but I don't know to what degree I'll, I will um, mention them again. I'd like to focus a little bit more on some of the ways uh, and things that Ezekiel says when he ministers. I find them to be uh, very interesting. So chapters 1 through 24, this is during that 11-year period. What you have is, if you look at the bottom of the screen... It, show, it speaks there about how that there were three deportations into the land of Babylon. One was in 605, one was in 597, and then uh, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem is destroyed. He was in that second group, and so from 597 to 586, you have an 11-year period. And that 11-year period, here's Ezekiel, he's in Babylon and he's bringing forth a message that is to the people in Babylon that are with him as well as those that are in uh, Jerusalem during that period. So he's ministering at the same time as Jeremiah, although Jeremiah ministered before him. So chapters 1 through 24, they were given before the final overthrow and destruction of Jerusalem. In 586 BC. And he speaks of the sin, the unbelief of Judah, and he contradicts the false prophet message about the temple. Do you remember what he talked about in regard to Jeremiah, where the false prophet's message was what? Do you remember it? It was the temple, the temple. I mean, the false prophets kept saying, in essence, hey, judgment is not going to come upon Jerusalem because of the temple of the Lord. This is where God dwells, and God's not going to permit judgment to come upon the temple of the Lord. That's where he dwells, and he's promised to remain there and stay there, and so as a result, there's no judgment that's going to become. So there was only one prophet, and Jeremiah or Ezekiel now can be included in that, so we've got two prophets that they came forth with a message that said that's not the case, that God is going to judge Judah and he's going to take the rest that are here, he's going to destroy Jerusalem, and he is going to uh, pull his people out. And they were stubborn. They were hard-headed. The majority refused to accept that. They just said Ezekiel and Jeremiah are being negative. They didn't want to believe it. But the bottom line is that the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant, just like the New Testament is a conditional covenant. And this sometimes you run into people, I remember years ago, where I was ministering down at Coshocton, and I made a comment uh, in my message, and this probably been 30 years ago, 35, and I made a comment about us uh, being under commandments. And a man in the front row piped up, interrupted my message, and he said, there are, no, there are no commandments in the New Testament. And his name was Roger. And I thought, Roger, where in the world are you coming from? I mean, 
the commandments of the New Testament are summarized up in two. What are they? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, all thy strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Those are just a summation of all the conditions into those two things. But we have been promised by God that we will have a blessed life if we meet certain conditions. I mean, I wrote down just a few of the scriptures here just to make a comment about it. We're talking about the New Testament. Mark eleven twenty five, for example, says that if you want answers to your prayers when you are praying, that you're to pray with a heart that has is filled with forgiveness. I mean, that's a condition. Bottom line, if you have resentment, bitterness, animosity, ill feelings in your heart towards someone, you can't take that that ick or tick or problem or offense or whatever they did to you and cast it over your shoulder and get rid of it and go beyond, you're not going to get answers to your prayers. And there are a lot of Christians today that just don't seem to think that that applies to them. But he said in Matthew, Mark eleven twenty five, when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any, that your heavenly Father can will forgive you. It's just, that's the bottom line, is you have to forgive. Another requirement or condition is faith. James 1, 5 says, if any of you lack, and he talks about the blessing of wisdom, but it could be a, applied to anything that's a promise. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, because he that wavers is like the wave of the sea. He's up and down, and that man will receive nothing of the Lord. Now, you may say, well, I know times I really struggled and I got blessed. That was God's grace. But there can be times where he may clamp down and say, no, unless you're willing to exercise the faith that I've taught you in my word, you're not going to receive the best blessing you could receive. I mean, we have to take the Bible at face value. Ephesians 6, for example, is one that goes to the, to the youth. I mean, put your ribbon there in Ezekiel 1. I'll come back to it. I think this is very important because we've got teenagers in here. And it's something to get rooted and grounded in your heart right now. And that is that respect toward authority, respect toward parents, is something that God views as the utmost important. I know you've probably had this drilled in you from a little child. Mom used to when in the homeschool days and just hammer it at the kids. We've got a really blessed family. And one reason why is because uh, godly mothers really stress to their children the importance of respect toward parents. But listen to it. It's a condition. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. He's, not, he's saying you there that, that what, they, what they tell you to do, if it's righteous and good, by God's standard, not yours or the world, but in the Lord, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Well, what is it? Now look at it. This man that said there are no commandments in the New Testament. Well, he just got done saying here that honoring your father and mother is... He's mentioning the Ten Commandments, but he's applying them to the New Testament Christian. He says that which was said in, the, in Exodus 20 by Moses applies here. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Promises come with conditions. And the condition here is 
that you honor your father and mother. He says that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth. Long life and blessed family comes with respect and honor toward your parents. And we could go on and on. Matthew 21, 22, all things you ask in prayer, believing you receive. Well, if you turn over and put your ribbon in Ezekiel 1 to, to Deuteronomy chapter 27, the Mosaic Covenant, the attitude of the people in Judah at that time, they've already seen some of the people removed to Babylon. Then they saw another group that was removed to Babylon. This would have been uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and another large group. But there was a, a remnant that was still there, and they said, Jeremiah's message is false. At one point, I'll try to bring this out at the end of the, today's message, if not next week, but Jeremiah had to wear a yoke. And he, as he's wearing that yoke, he said, come under the yoke of the nation of Babylon. You may as well get used to the fact that you're going to be punished for 70 years so come under the yoke, submit to them, make your houses, establish your businesses, make things work for you. And one of the false prophets came along and broke the yoke off of him and said, Jeremiah is a false prophet. We're not going to suffer at the hands of the Babylonians. In two years, we're going to conquer them. And Jeremiah stood right there the whole time and said, okay, that sounds great. I hope it happens, but it's not going to happen. And God then spoke through Jeremiah and said the things that you have said about Jeremiah and how that he was going to die and this, that, and the other. Now it's going to come upon you. So they just couldn't get it in their heads that the Israelite, the Jew, was going to be judged even uh, for their sins in Judah. Well, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 15, Deuteronomy 27, 28, is the blessings and the cursings. And we've talked about them before. And let me explain something here. When you talk about the law, the law in the Old Testament was God's constitution to a nation. That nation was Israel. Now we have a constitution in this country, and we have laws in this country. And those laws carry with it a punishment. For example, if you get picked up driving with a certain percentage of alcohol in your system, you're going to get a DUI, driving under the influence. And with it always comes some kind of punishment. Three days in jail, a big fine, a lot of other things are carried with it. If you watch any TV lately, they've even pointed out that it could cost you as much as several thousand dollars. But law without punishment is just good advice. I mean, if, if a policeman pulled a drunk over and said to him, you know, I, I see your alcohol breathalyzer here shows you to be, you know, I don't know what the thing are, but let's say 3% over the limit, I would just advise you that you don't want to drink quite that much anymore the next time you go out. Be real careful getting home so you don't crash your car. That's just good advice. No punishment with it. The law carried punishment. Well, it's the same way with the Old Testament law. If you violated what God said, it carried with it punishment. And the bringing forth of the judge's pronouncement of punishment was God's holy wrath. If God was not holy, if God's wrath was not 
revealed in the Old Testament. It's revealed more than his love. But if God was not a holy God of wrath, then he'd be an unjust judge. It didn't mean that they always had to bear the punishment because the sacrificial system was pointing to God's grace. There were times that when they sinned, they would offer up a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was put to death. The sacrifice bore the punishment of the broken law, but the broken law always had to be satisfied. You carry that to the New Testament, our sacrifice is Jesus Christ. But you still have to get into your mind that the law is just like the law today. That if the speed limit's 55 and you get pulled over for going 75, you've broken the law. And if the policeman says, I'm going to give you a warning, that's grace. That's mercy. But it's his responsibility to uphold the law. Law carries with it punishment. So Israel, over and over again, God had shown them mercy, he had forgiven them, he had manifested grace, they had offered up multitudes of sacrifices, but it wasn't doing any good because it was just going through the motions. You know, they would just offer up sacrifice, and they were getting away from that and getting into a idolatrous worship. And finally God said, okay, by my holiness, this law has to be upheld. His justice and holiness required it. What he had told them was in Deuteronomy 28, even though the false prophets now are saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we, God's not going to judge us because here's his temple. Deuteronomy chapter 28, he said to them very plainly, it'll come to pass if thou will hearken, if thou will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and do all his commandments, and his statutes, which I command thee this day, then all these curses shall come upon thee. And of all the things he talks about, sickness, disease, poverty, etc. But he moves on down here to, uh, let's see, I wrote down verse 28, but that's not it. He comes down to the latter portions in verse uh, 48, and he says, Verse 47, because you serve not the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore thou shalt serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger, thirst, nakedness, want of all things. He will put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until you have been destroyed. The Lord will bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou wilt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of old age, nor show favor to the young. He shall eat the fruit of thy cattle, the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed, which also thou shalt not leave either corn, wine, oil, or the increase of kind or flocks or sheep until he has destroyed thee. And he goes right on down and he says that he will remove them from off the land from which they have been given. So he very plainly spelled out, this is the punishment if you don't continue to faithfully obey me that will be carried out. So the false prophets were ignoring what the word of God said and they were just ministering what was popularly accepted contrary to the word of God. So here comes Ezekiel. <coughs> Jeremiah's been saying it. 
he's been he is being greatly uh, rejected, despised, and criticized. So God raises up in Ezekiel, and uh oh, we popped the fuse. Can you change it in the bathroom for me? Okay, so turn over to chapter one. What you have in chapters one through three is first of all, Ezekiel sees the majestic glory of the Lord being manifested to him. It's a theophany. And he's manifesting himself to him. And then after that manifestation, in chapter 2, he gives Ezekiel his responsibility, his call. And his call basically is to be that of a watchman. What Ezekiel's going to do for the next 11 years is he's going to have the same message as Jeremiah except he's going to be acting it out more than, more than proclaiming it. There are going to be periods of time where he can't even speak. His tongue will be, uh, it says, clothed to the roof of his mouth. He can't even speak sometimes his message. But what he does is he will take, for example, and take, make little bricks, little tiles, and he'll scratch on them what the city of Jerusalem looks like, and then he would lay on his side for 430 days. We're talking about over a year. He would lay on his one side, then he would lay on another side, and obviously not 24 hours a day, but for long periods of time. And he would, he would lay siege at these bricks, do things like that, in, indicating that judgment was coming to Jerusalem. He did a lot of other things, and I'll mention them at the end of the message. We'll probably talk about them more next week. But he did all kinds of different things in actions, bringing forth the same message as Jeremiah. But let's start with chapter 1. And this is kind of interesting to have an understanding of what this is. I'd like to read it. Verse 4. It says, uh, He was by the river in the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon, he says, I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of a fire. Now, this whole area, is, a lot of people have come up with really uh, different interpretations as to what it means. I believe it's just a, just basically, uh, I'm going to give you what is probably most commonly accepted. Here's Ezekiel, and he has a vision. And in this vision, he's like in a thunderstorm. And in the midst of this thunderstorm is going to come forth a chariot. In the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearances, that they had the likeness of a man... And everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they, had, and they four had their faces and their wings, and their wings were joined one to another, and they turned not when they went, and they went, everyone, straight forward. And as for the likeness of their faces, they had four. They, these four had the face of a man and the face of a lion 
on the right side, and these four had the face of an ox on the left side, and these four had the face of an eagle. Thus they were, thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched outward. Two wings of every one joined together to another body, two covered their bodies, and they went, every one straight forward, wherever the spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not as they went. Now right away you read that and you kind of shake your head and say, man, what is that? Sounds confusing. As for the creatures of, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance is like that of a burning coal of fire and was like the burnets appearance of lamps it went up and down among the living creatures and the fire was bright and out of the fire went forth lightning and the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning and as i beheld the living creatures one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with the four faces and the appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of burl and they had four head and they four had one likeness, and the appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. So what you've got here is a wheel in the middle of a wheel. There are four wheels, four living creatures. They all have four wings, and they all have four faces. The faces are like the face of a man, the face of an eagle, the face of an ox, um, and a face of a lion. So what is this? Well, it's mentioned more than once in the book of Ezekiel. It's mentioned chapter 10, the whole chapter deals with it. It's mentioned again in chapter 8. When God would speak to Ezekiel, sometimes he would manifest himself in this way. This is a theophany. Just like when the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and spoke to him, gave him commandments to go and deliver his people. Uh, this, is, this is one of those situations where God can temporarily manifest himself in a variety of ways, like the angel of the Lord, a burning bush, or Ezekiel's wheel within a wheel. I believe what you basically have here, and I've written this down, you can see it. It's a thunderstorm with four creatures, each one attending a particular wheel. And one, like a man, is enthroned in the cross section in the middle of another wheel, and each creature had four faces, a man, a lion, a cherub, an ox. Chapter 10 calls it a cherub. Chapter 1 calls it an ox and an eagle. And they had four wings, and each one had the sound as these wings moved that you could hear the voice of the Lord. Now, this is an artist's rendition um, of what some have suggested it might look like. This is a common one. I'm not saying I agree with it. Completely, but you get at least a little bit of an idea that you've got here the four wheels and you've got the four creatures and God's throne is in the middle of that upon it. You have an expanse that goes all the way around. You have another wheel here. So you have a wheel within a wheel. This would be depicting Ezekiel and the scroll that he's about to be told to eat. Uh, but, and I'm not saying that obviously God would look like that, but the point is that it is considered to be like the chariot of the Lord. Pardon? Can you shut the lights off so I can see that better? Uh, I can see it, okay. Can you see it? I mean, it's up to you. I'm not. The idea is that it is some kind of a chariot with four wheels, 
and you've got these living creatures that are around, and you've got God sitting on a throne in the midst of it. And this is his glory that's coming forth. What? And four wings, yeah, and they're not really showing four faces in that. But it would appear by what we read that they've got four faces. And you say, man, that sounds really totally different than anything on earth. And yeah, it is. That's the point. I mean, Paul spoke in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that he was caught up into a third heaven. And when he was caught up into the third heaven, he was given revelations and truth, and he said there's no words in our language ability to convey what he saw. Um, he went on to say that that became a thorn in his flesh, which was persecution. But he said that he was given words that were impossible to explain. I'm sure that we will get over on the other side. We're going to find things uh, in a, a lot of ways a lot different than maybe what we ever imagined. But it's going to be glorious because this is the way that God was manifesting himself to Ezekiel. Now look, if you will, uh, sometimes the Bible talks about the chariot of the Lord or the chariot of cherubims. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 18. This is what I think that probably he saw was something like the chariot of the Lord. And with this, as he goes through the book, he's going to show that this is the departure of God from his temple, from the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. When that occurs, he's Ichabod, spirit is gone, departed. And as a result, Jerusalem then is no longer God's throne. Let me go back a little bit to what I had up here. Um, but if you look at First Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 18, for example, you read here, this is the period of time where David is giving Solomon the things that he saved up for the temple to be built. And he makes a statement here in the midst of it all. We won't read it all. But it says in verse 19, All this said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. Talking about the temple and the tabernacle or the temple and the throne and all that. David said to Solomon, his son, be strong, be, be of good courage, and do it. Fear not. Oops, I'm sorry, I backed up. I'm ahead. Um, let's start at verse 17. These are the things he's given him. Pure gold for the flesh hooks and the bowls and the cups and the golden basins, all of that we've dealt with before. Verse 18, for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings and covered the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, we know there were cherubims that covered the Ark of the Covenant. But notice here, he refers to them as the chariot, the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims. And so many believe that's what Ezekiel saw, was the chariot or the cherub, cherubims of the Lord. If you look over to Psalm 18... Again, it mentions something like this. And like I said, there are people that just go zonkers on what, what every little detail means. I'm not going to do that. But I think that's what he saw was the glory of the Lord and the chariot of the cherubims that was carrying God 
uh, to Ezekiel for a reason. Now look at Psalm 18.10. It's mentioned here, for example, where he says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run unto it and are safe. Did I write that down? Pardon? Oh, I'm in Proverbs. No wonder it didn't. I thought to myself, Psalm 18 and verse 10. All right, this is talking about the Lord. And it says, He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness a secret place, his pavilion round about. But there it speaks about how that he rode upon cherubs and did fly. And another place talks about the chariot of cherubs of the Lord. So that's what many believe this is, is God's manifestation of him riding upon the chariot of cherubs and the purpose for which he comes. Ezekiel, so we turn over there. And his calling is a calling that, well, in a lot of ways it applies to us because we're all ministers of the new covenant. In chapter 2, he says unto Ezekiel, Son of man, stand up upon thy feet and I will speak to thee. So he's going to give him his calling. The Spirit entered into me when he spoke unto me and he set me upon my feet, and I heard him that spoke unto me. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. They are a impudent children. They're hard-headed. They're stubborn. They don't want to listen. Just like we have multitudes of people today that are hard-headed, stubborn. They don't want the gospel. They don't, want to, they don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. He says, I send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will not hear, for they're a rebellious house, yet shall they know that there hath been a prophet among them. You know, as Christians, we're called, we've been given a commission to preach gospel. There are going to be times when Holy Spirit impresses upon you to bring forth something in regard to God's word. And when he does, you don't want to quench that spirit. You want to bring it forth and not be afraid to bring it forth. And it doesn't mean that every single time that you bring it forth, it's just going to be automatically received. What do we do now? Anyways, I'm going to forget it. <laughs> It doesn't mean that it's always going to be received. There's going to be a lot of times where it's not going to be received. You're going to be called foolish and ignorant, laughed at, ridiculed. But God is saying, in essence, it doesn't matter. You need to, be, you need to stand strong and firm and not deny him. So when it came to Ezekiel, this is what he said. I'm going to send you to a people that they're not going to want to hear what you got to say. But it doesn't matter because my purpose and goal is that they'll know that there's been a prophet among them. Thou son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, nor their briars or their thorns. Thou dost dwell among scorpions. 
But be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, because they're a rebellious house. The name Ezekiel means God will strengthen. And when he sends him forth to them, all the things that he's going to do, you can imagine, this is not going to be an easy ministry. Can you imagine laying on your side, sometimes on the left side, sometimes on the right side, every day for over a year, a year and a half almost, not saying a word, and laying siege to a little brick that has a city scribbled upon it. If you think people aren't going to think he's nuts, okay? And whether they understand it or not, whether they accept it or not, is not the point. God's already telling him, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to listen to you. But they'll know, and they wouldn't find out until after Jerusalem, 586 B.C., is destroyed, and then it'll be too late. By the time that it's over, they're going to say, you know what? We had a prophet in our midst, and we didn't listen to him. And that's just God's judgment, because they failed to heed what he said. Verse 7. Thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they hear or whether they forbear. They are most rebellious. Thou, son of man, hear what I say to thee. Be thou not rebellious like that rebellious house, but open your mouth and eat that I give thee. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, there was a roll of a book thereon. So a scroll came down from this manifestation of God's glory and it was given unto him and he said eat the book he spread it before me and it was written within and written without and there was written therein lamentations mournings and woe and he said unto me son of man eat that thou find eat this roll and go speak unto the house of Israel as he ate it it was a confirmation that he accepted what his calling was and he also was basically symbolizing that he was getting God's word in his heart and so he ate it he said unto me son of man cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this wool that I may give thee and I did eat and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness and he said unto me son of man go and get thee unto the house of Israel and speak thy words unto me unto them for thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech, of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Now here he's talking about both Judah and Israel, because in Babylon, where he was at, you had now both, both nations captive. Not to many people of a strange speech, of, of hard language, whose words thou cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to them, they would have listened. He said, you know, if he would have sent him to the Babylonians, to the ungodly who didn't know the truth, they'd listen. But Israel was so hard-headed, stubborn, and refused to heed what God's word said, they wouldn't listen. But you've been sent to the house of Israel, and they will not hearken unto thee. Well, if we drop on down, he basically tells him here, in verse 17, what his commission is, or in chapter 3 and verse 17, and that is, he says, I'm sending you as a watchman. 
He was a watchman. And you and I are watchmen. You better listen to what I'm saying. You and I are watchmen. And when God speaks to us that we should speak to someone about the things of the Lord, if we refuse to yield, their blood can be held to our charge for an unwillingness to speak up when God wants us to speak. Now, I know he's all merciful and gracious and everything else, but he doesn't want you to be a follower. He wants you to be a leader. He wants you to be one that is not ashamed of the gospel. So if you look at what he says here, he tells Ezekiel he's a watchman. He says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. Now what a watchman was is a, a watchman, for example, in those days like the, with Jerusalem, they had uh, a wall all around it. And a watchman would watch the wall. And if the enemy was coming, it was his responsibility to warn the enemy that was coming. You might find a watchman today. When we were traveling uh, a little bit north of Dayton the other night, there were tornadoes that were coming in from Indianapolis when we were coming home. The weather was very bad. And I got on to one entrance ramp, and there was a pickup truck off to the side. And I thought to myself, because they had told me in this one restaurant we stopped at that there were tornado warnings out, and I thought, he's a watcher. A tornado watchman is one, you'll see him, if warnings go out, you know, you see him sitting at different places, and they're looking for a tornado to come, then they get on the radio and send out the signals to people to take cover, there's a tornado coming. That's what a watchman is. A watchman, when he sees that there is something wrong, it's his responsibility, when God anoints him and tells him to do so, to bring it forth and warn people of the impending judgment that's to come. If he does, whether they receive it or not, doesn't matter. He has met his responsibility. But if he keeps quiet because of fear, for whatever reason, and they perish, then he says God will hold him accountable for their blood. He says, verse 18, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speaks to warn the wicked from his wicked ways to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. That's pretty awesome. Now, you may say, well, that's Old Testament and that's a prophet. I don't think that really applies to us. Quite to the contrary, it does apply to us. I mean, let me, let me hold your finger there. And let me just show you one thing in Acts 20. Paul, for example, here, the Apostle Paul was going to be going to Rome. And prophets had said, in essence, that he was going to meet with conflict and trouble. And, of course, he did. He died in Rome after he went there. And he was in prison, of course, for a while. But he made the statement here in verse, I'll, I'll pick it up a little bit, uh, in Acts 20. He says, Behold, verse 22, I go bound in the Spirit under Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall be fall me. He was going to Jerusalem, then it would be Rome. Save that the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that bands and afflictions, or bonds and afflictions abide me. 
None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now we've all been given that commission, church. We all have. And now behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. In other words, he knows in his heart that even though it's cost him immense amount of persecution, when he was moved upon by the Holy Spirit to speak up, and take a stand, just like what Daniel's going to do when we get into that book. He took a stand for what was right. He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Then he says, take heed therefore, brethren, unto yourselves, and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you to be an overseer, feed the church of God which he's purchased with his own blood. We could give you a whole discourse on the watchman. But we have a responsibility to speak what is right, whether we, we don't want to get our feelings and our emotions and our compassion and all of our mushy-gushy feelings into it. If God said this is the way something is to be, then that's what we're to hold to. And if, we, and if we tell people otherwise, if we don't tell them the truth, you give them your opinion, and not God's word. You can be held accountable for that. That's what the false prophets did. So he tells Ezekiel. He shows him this vision. They're over in Judah. They're, they're calling him and Jeremiah a false prophet. They don't believe any judgments coming their way. And so for 11 years, he is symbolically expressing that they are going to be judged because the law says thus and thus and thus, and you have not obeyed it. And you've come out with the sacrifices which have become nothing more than a ritual. There's no repentance on your part. There's no change on your part. The purpose of a sacrifice being offered was a second chance. We're, we are under grace, but we're not free to disobey the laws of God and disobey uh, what he has said. We're not free from that. We're not free to do whatever we want. Discipleship in Christianity is pick up your cross. Put what you want to do to death. That's a hard message, but that's the Christian message. That's what it means to be a Christian. I mean, I hear people all the time talking about the saviorhood of Jesus, but discipleship is many, many times left out. Well, let me keep reading here. Ezekiel 3.19, he says, after he got done saying to them that, verse 18, When I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, and thou givest not him the warning, nor speaks to him to warn the wicked from his wicked way to, and save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turns not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he'll die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. That's a phenomenal responsibility. I remember years ago working at one factory. I had one man that I took to work every day. I don't remember why. He just couldn't afford to drive or whatever. I picked him up every morning. And he was a 
a supposedly a backslidden Mormon. And so we rode to work every day, and we listened to cassette tapes on the way. Some of you might not even know what a cassette player was. It came after the 8-track. <laughs> but I would put in Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland, some of those guys that I'm not real big on now. But, but when I picked him up, man, we'd listen to sermons on the way to work. And I'd preach to him all the time I worked with him. And behind my back, he was talking to his Mormon priest. And there came a point where in me ministering to him and trying to get him to become a Christian, that he turned on me and tried to get me to become a Mormon. And, and I basically shared the scriptures with him out of First John and told him uh, that was it. It was cutting ties that he was not saved because he was denying the Lord Jesus. And I remember saying to him, your blood be upon your own head. And I shared that with some people. I was going to school at that time in Indiana. And I shared that with some people, and they were like beside themselves. Oh, how can you say something like, like that? And I said, well, I believe the Spirit of God told me to say that. I still believe that today. I mean, that, I, I can also recall at that time, there was, a, there was a guard shack, a watchman, in this factory. I would go out and have lunch every day out on a picnic table, and I'd read my Bible. And this man in a guard shack, and he wasn't 100% there. He just, there was some things, I mean, I want to leave that wrong impression. He was all right. <laughs> well, he was a few fries short of a happy meal, but I don't mean to imply that he had mental problems. He just was different, okay? Not like people, and he's just different. And I had my lunch every day by the guard shack, and he would stand there and he'd watch me. And then he'd ask me questions about what I was doing. I'd tell him, Mom, reading my Bible. And I shared with him the gospel a lot. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, I just can't get into the Bible. It's just too hard for me to grasp and understand. And that happened to be on a Wednesday. And I went to Indiana that night and I, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, you buy him a Bible. And I got him one that was a little bit different, easier to read version don't remember exactly which one it was the next day thursday i took it to him and i gave it to him and i said here lord told me to give you this he said thank you and i happened to work in, a, in a, the tool shop and it had doors that were outside and i could be cutting steel and doing different things and the machine would be running and it walk outside because it was summertime nice weather and i could look down at the guard shack and he was probably um well not as far as your cars but not as close as the doors here, maybe a little bit further. And I kept looking out at him all day. And all day when he wasn't doing the watching, he was sitting there and I could see that Bible in front of me. He was reading it. And I, so I felt pretty good about it. I felt like the Lord had, had, you know, confirmed to me what he told me to do. And the next day when I came in on Friday, he wasn't there. I thought that was rather unusual. And I started asking around about what happened to so-and-so. He said, you didn't hear? I said, no. And he was also a night watchman at a convenience store. I believe that's the way the story went. This many years ago. And that night, somebody came in to rob the convenience store where he was at. And he thought he'd be Mr. Big security guard and tried to take the individual on. He was shot and killed. Now, you think about it. 
Had I not bought, I don't know if he made it or not. We don't know. But it's pretty, pretty touching, friends, if you think about it, that he had a Bible in his hand reading it. I think he was getting right with the Lord. And that was on the day after the Lord told me to buy him that Bible. The next day, he's, he's gone. He's not on the planet. Had I not done that, I would not have wanted his blood on my hands. I mean, this is the way God is saying it to us. He's trying to tell Ezekiel, this is not going to be easy, Zeke. You're going to find that there's going to be multitudes of people. The whole nation hated Jeremiah. And Ezekiel was right in that batch. But God said, in essence, my, you are my prophet. You are my spokesman. You are the one. You are a light among many that I want you to hold on to the truth and stick with the truth. And if they don't receive it, that's not your problem. But if, they, but if you refuse to yield, their blood will be, then I'll hold you at their charge. So a watchman is obligated to do one basic thing, and that is to sound the alarm. He's not responsible for the response to the alarm. And that's what his calling was. Now we'll pick up from that next week because it's quite interesting to see some of the things he says and how he acts them out. But with it, can you see how that God is saying, look, these are the laws to this nation which I have established and set up and I've been merciful and gracious for you to provide you a substitute for those mistakes because I know you're human. But... You've just turned totally away from me. You don't care anymore. And one of the things I said was, if you, go, if you get to that degree, I'm going to take away your land and I'm going to scatter you to the four winds. And he did. And the significance of him laying on his side, Ezekiel, brings up the Maccabean era, which is the only time for a very short period of time they got back their sovereignty but it was very short and the date fits right with him laying on their side after that came the crucifixion of christ the rejection of his own son followed by them scattered to the to the four winds of the world until 1948 and jesus said when you see things beginning to come forth the fig tree begin to blossom look up and he says, be watchful and alert and on guard because all these things will come to pass. That's why there's been many great revivals. And people have been told to turn to the Lord and outpouring of the Holy Spirit and many other things. And that's why it grieves my heart to see some people just turn away from what their purpose was unto wood, hay, and stubble in many, many ways. Well, I'm done for the day. Father, I pray that I've just lit a little, little, lit some fire here under the church to see this book is, has a lot of truth to it that we can learn from. You told us to listen to the Old Testament, that it had truths for us to apply in principle to our own heart. And here's where you manifested yourself in a a glorious way, kind of confusing to us. But maybe the cherub, chariot of cherubims. 
bringing forth to Ezekiel a message that said, I'm calling you to, and to a ministry of being a watchman and a ministry unto people to turn back unto God's word before it's too late. Father, help us to glean from these things truths that we can apply in our own life, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.